What's going on guys? Welcome to Everything Always. My name is Michael Roman. Very exciting times over at Marvel Studios just within the last 48 hours. The rights have officially bounced back to Marvel for Daredevil, freeing them up to do whatever they want with the character, including introduce him in a future Spider-Man movie and or bring back Charlie Cox in a story recanted by none other than the Kingpin himself, Vincent D'Onofrio, talking about Clark Gregg supporting just that and him recently tweeting the same. If you've been paying attention to the Marvel news at all via industry insider Mikey Sutton, we've had a ton of indications that Marvel Studios intends on doing just that. We're going to break down this latest tweet from Clark Gregg, the actor that plays Agent Coulson, and the story as retold by Vincent D'Onofrio, the Kingpin. This is super interesting. We're going to break it all down, but first, if you could grab the subscribe button, we're still giving away this insane one-fourth scale beta ray bill and our third and final Infinity Saga box set. All you have to do to be entered to win, hit the subscribe button, then leave a comment down below, and if you want, stick around to the end of the video. We'll get into all the giveaway stuff again there. So Clark Gregg just tweeted out, say it with me, people, hashtag save Daredevil, in a retweet from Vincent D'Onofrio that went on and said this, hashtag Charlie Cox warming up the audience at Marvel tribute to the amazing hashtag Stan Lee. Interesting listening to all the old stories about Lee. At Clark Gregg hosted the Eve. Clark Gregg out of the blue blurted, save Daredevil, then said, there, I said it. Cool, Mr. Greg at Renew Daredevil Excelsior. And you have to think Vincent D'Onofrio has also been on public record saying he'd love to come back as the Kingpin. And he knows if they re-sign Charlie Cox as Daredevil, that's one step closer to including some of that backstory. Now, as I've conjectured many times, Marvel Studios might not want to canonize everything that we saw on Netflix, but they could decide to pick and choose much in the way that they cast Mahershala Ali now is Blade. Obviously, he's not also Cottonmouth. And if they do decide to keep any of the characters and go forward, my argument has been just do what you did with Spider-Man. Bring him in. Don't use any of the story they've already told and don't retell any of the backstory. There's no need for it. Just drop him in and go forward with that. Now, an easier way they could do it, but something that I feel like would be lazy writing is, of course, use this multiverse that's coming up to sort of bring in characters that they need, leaving their backstories behind. But then you sort of have to explain that. And if you use that as your overall catch-all for every single character that's coming over, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think they can easily recast Charlie Cox's Daredevil, and again, just go forward with his narrative the way they need him, crossing over with Spider-Man as reported in the last couple of weeks without having to explain anything that happened before or canonize any of it. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. It is pretty cool that Agent Coulson cares enough about the Netflix series in Daredevil to want to have to reach out and support, and I think that we all agree as fans of the Netflix series and Marvel Comics, they did Daredevil justice, and Charlie Cox was an awesome version and iteration. That's why I think he has so much support from not only the fan community, but apparently his co-actors as well. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. And quickly, let's get into the giveaway stuff before I let you go. We're still giving away this insane one-fourth scale Beta Ray Bill and our third and final Infinity Saga box set this month at the end of the month, regardless of subscriber count. And tomorrow, we're going to be announcing the new prizes. If you want to be entered to win, all the same stuff will always apply. Hit the subscribe button because you've got to be a subscriber here at the channel. Then make sure to leave a comment down below. The more videos you comment on, because it's truly random, the better chance you have of winning. Then hit the notification bell to keep up with the videos. And of course, if you enjoyed today's video and the rest of the content here at the channel, smash the like button. My name is Michael Roman. This is everything always, guys. Thanks so much for checking out the channel and stick around. We'll be posting again real, real soon.
What's going on guys? Welcome to Everything Always. My name's Michael Roman. Today would have been Chadwick Boseman's 44th birthday and in order to honor him in yet another way, Marvel Studios updated the intro to Black Panther on Disney+. Plus. That's the clip I played from you at the beginning and just basically montaged a ton of his work from Black Panther. Of course, this is still on the tip of everybody's tongue and we've already discussed at length that Marvel Studios does not plan on recasting or even doing any sort of CGI. Most recently, one of the executive VPs Victoria Alonso said that Chadwick passed away in real life and in fiction too and it looks as though the way that Marvel Studios chooses to honor Chadwick going forward is to leave his work be speak for itself and not continue in any sort of way. This is a very moving and touching update for the intro of Black Panther, one that I think they'd use on Black Panther 2 but regardless the reverence that Marvel Studios and the execs have chosen to give his work by not annotating it in any way by not bringing back a CGI body double or a recast really tells you the impact he made not only on the globe and the community and what he meant for Marvel Studios and the representation of King T'Challa, but what he meant to everybody he worked with over there at Marvel Studios. Again, this is a very, very touching memorial for him, and although we are all very anxious to see how they choose to handle this, I don't think there's a single person who wants to see him recast and not even a CGI bought a double. I, for one, love this idea that they'll just pick up the story and keep going forward and allow all of his work to remain as is and speak for itself. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below if this is still affecting you. I teared up for sure as I shared when he passed away. I have one of my own family members dealing with terminal cancer. This is just a reminder that how prevalent it is. Even if you don't know someone in your own family, there's a chance that one of your friend's family members are suffering from some of this. And the truth is, is that it's not something that he wanted public. We found out after the fact that he didn't tell anybody. No one at Marvel Studios did. There was no way to plan for this. And that's just another testament to his strength, wanting to be considered an actor and have his work taken seriously without being overshadowed by his disease. Truly, truly an amazing person and one that will be forever missed. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below and quickly let's get into the giveaway stuff before I let you go. We're still giving away this insane one-fourth scale Beta Ray Bill and our third and final Infinity Saga box set this December regardless of the subscriber count. If you want to be entered to win, all you have to do hit the subscribe button, then leave a comment down below and because it's truly random, the more videos you comment on the better chance you have of winning then hit the subscribe button to make sure that you're a subscriber here at the channel and of course if you enjoyed today's video or the rest of the content we put out we'd always appreciate it if you hit the like button my name is michael roman you can find me over on instagram at i am fires or over on twitch twitch.tv forward slash novellen nve llen there's links down in the description to both guys thanks for checking out the channel and stick around we will be posting again real real soon going on guys welcome to everything always my name is michael roman now that marvel studios has begun production on its second wave of disney plus shows she hulk and moon knight set to start early this spring of course miss marvel just started and which should be further along than that the hawkeye series which at some point was even in some question and we're going to get to that breaking today from an industry insider source we have a report yelena belova's black widow will be reprising her role in the hawkeye series and there are some details attached which allow us to speculate just a little 
little bit. We're going to break down where this is coming from, what they said about the character and the role itself, and try to speculate as to what this could mean for the narrative and the future of the MCU, especially the future of this Black Widow. But first, if you could grab the subscribe button, we're still giving away this insane one-fourth scale Beta Ray Bill, as well as our third and final Infinity Saga box set next month, regardless of the subscriber count. If you want to be entered to win, all you have to do, hit the subscribe button, then leave a comment down below. And if you want, stick around at the end of the video. We'll get into all the giveaway stuff again there. So again, this broke from the direct beta within the last 15 minutes under the headline, Marvel's Hawkeye, Florence Pugh joins Jeremy Renner Disney Plus series exclusive. They go on to report several images from Hawkeye star Jeremy Renner indicate that production is about to get rolling. And that's true. We've seen that over on his Instagram. And if you've missed it, he's been posting pictures with his stunt bag, uh, a couple of the makeup shots with cuts on his nose and his head. He's definitely about to start filming on this show, whether he's even started or not. It could have started last week, to be totally honest. They go on to say, quote, Florence Pugh, who is co-starring in next year's Black Widow as the assassin Yelena Belova, will reprise her role in Hawkeye on Disney+. Plus. The Direct exclusively has learned, although the full extent of Pugh's role is currently unknown, our sources indicate that Pugh's Yelena will at some point don a Ronin-inspired costume similar to the suit that Clint Barton wore in Avengers Endgame. This is at one point in the series. Now, we had speculated at length as far as these Avengers that are going forward into Marvel Phase 4, and with some of them having their own Disney Plus series, not as much for Loki because we understand where the story's going, although that time rift was created as a back in time, somewhere along the timeline. For these other characters, without actual time travel, they're going to go back in time with flashbacks so that they contextualize a story. That's how we hear about Budapest during the upcoming Black Widow. There's a lot of their story to tell, and when it comes to Hawkeye, him as well. He's almost a complete mystery in the MCU. I was sure that especially during his series, even more so than say like Loki and more like the Black Widow film, they were going to have several flashbacks, not just for Budapest, but how he even got involved with S.H.I.E.L.D., his early involvement with the Avengers and Nick Fury. And now as though we'll see more time as his time as Ronin, maybe in between the snap, but that Ronin garb should have, would have come from somewhere, maybe earlier in his storyline. And unless Yelena Belova is going to cross over with him during that mid-snap period, those five years, which may be the case, then it's even more likely the case that this is going to be even further back We'll get to see the origins for that Ronin costume and how they cross over with each other. Remember, his tie to Nat and everything that's supposed to happen in the upcoming Black Widow film, even if it's just the Budapest scene, is going to go a long way in contextualizing their relationship, some of her weaker moments, and maybe even the recruitment of her to S.H.I.E.L.D. via Hawkeye. If Yelena Belova and Natasha Romanoff are sisters like they say in the film, then of course there would be knowledge of Hawkeye on Yelena's part, maybe even some crossover, and that's what we might get to see in flashback. However, even more interesting than that, if this is during the snap and she's also in the Ronin garb alongside him, there may be some backstory there, maybe even some crossover of intentions left over from whatever this backstory we see is. And while at least we know that part of the Hawkeye series, like part of the Black Widow film, will be set for flashbacks in the MCU, most of it's going to be pushing into the future, which leaves the door wide open for speculation as to what can be happening with Florence Pugh with her version of Black Widow in the MCU. Remember, Kate Shortland, the director, said that this would push her story forward, and a lot of us have speculated she may even take the place of Natasha Romanoff alongside the Avengers, depending on what happens with the Thunderbolts and whatever happens with Thunderbolt Ross. She could be double agenting. That's what they all do. But make no bones about it. The involvement now of Yelena Belova in the Disney 
Plus series just doesn't mean backstory, it probably means her role going forward into the MCU as we've speculated and the only question left now is whose side is she truly on and whose interests will she truly serve. If we get to see some more of the fleshed out story during the snap with him as Ronan, you can be sure that's going to be super brutal as indicated by that scene. I wonder how well that will play on Disney Plus and with all this talk now of a Disney 18 Plus series coming somewhere to the platform, you have to wonder if the Hawkeye show isn't made for it. Now while we're on the subject and since we haven't talked about it here at the channel for quite some time, given how evidence has been super flimsy, the involvement of Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop has been reported and rejected and reported and denied several times, much like the other reports, Jonathan Majors as King, even Tatiana Mazzolani when she was cast as Hulk, she recently denied it. Anyway, there's no telling what's going on with the role of Kate Bishop, but you have to assume if they're moving forward on production the way that they have been, and this series is centered around Hawkeye passing the mantle to Kate Bishop, they must have cast someone. The fact they've been able to keep it under wraps and this tight-lipped up until now is super impressive, but once production gets underway, as soon as we see someone on set, and we will see someone on set, actually, the way it is in the industry right now, all we'll need to see is who stunt double it is, and then we'll know immediately who Kate Bishop is, and all sources have indicated it's Haley Steinfeld. There has just been absolutely zero confirmation, and it seems from the chorus of the audience that is the fans here at the channel, that's who you guys really want to see in that role. Let me know all your thoughts down below. What do you think is going on here with Yelena Belova? Is this going to be all flashbacks and pre-series, or is this going to be going into the future? Where do you think this show is going to be set, and what role do you think Yelena Belova's Black Widow will have in the future of the MCU? Double agent for the Thunderbolts, working under Thunderbolt Ross, trying to infiltrate what's going on, or an actual member of the Avengers, a superhero, going on to take Take the place of Natasha Romanoff, even though no one could ever take her place. You guys know what I mean. Let me know all your thoughts down below and quickly let's get into the giveaway stuff before I let you go. Okay, so tomorrow's a huge day at the channel. We're announcing two brand new prizes going forward into 2021. In the meantime, we're going to be giving away this insane one-fourth scale beta ray bill and our third and final Infinity Saga box set. Now, we gave two box sets away earlier this year. This thing was limited in production to 4,000. They absolutely shot up in value on the secondary market. This is going to be the final one we give away at the channel. It's going to be given away on New Year's Eve alongside Beta Ray Bill, regardless of the subscriber count as we sort of slow down going into the new year. We are going to announce two new prizes tomorrow. Hint, hint, we've already given away 16 PlayStation 4 Pros here at the channel. I wonder what they could be. As we switch over the prizes and going forward to the new year, hopefully to give away tickets and DVDs and other stuff related to these films as they start to be released. All the same rules will always apply. Hit the subscribe button because you need to be a subscriber here at the channel. Then leave a comment down below on this video and because it's truly random, the more videos you comment on, the better chance you have of winning. All winners will be announced at the end of videos the same way we're doing here. So if you've missed any of the previous winner announcements, no worries. All you have to do is scroll back to the channel, look for the winner announcement in the sub count on the title, click on that video, scroll to the end. Then make sure to hit the notification bell with notifications turned on to keep up with the content. And as always, if you enjoyed today's video or the other videos we do here at the channel, we'd appreciate it if you hit the like button. My name's Michael Roman. You can find me over on Instagram at I am fires or over on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Novellen. N-V-E-L-L-E-N. -L -L -E There's links down in the description to both. My name is Michael Roman. This is everything always, guys. Thanks for checking out the channel and stick around. We'll be posting again real, real soon.
going on guys? Welcome to Everything Always. My name's Michael Roman. You know, since this channel's inception almost three years ago, we've done our best to cover everything from the official announcements and trailer releases all the way down to the anonymous 4chan leaks and everything in between, including theories and rumors, one of which suits what's going on today. The continued rumor that Jaden Smith could show up as a live action Miles Morales in the future. And I think what's happening here is a couple of pieces of news getting conflated, mixed around as far as the timelines concerned and with the recent collaboration between Jaden Smith and Sony officially on Miles Morales, it definitely let people think that there was maybe something more going on than there actually is. And I've gotten a ton of DMs in the last week asking me about this. So today we're going to break down exactly what happened, the official news that concerns Jaden Smith and Miles Morales, why it might not be much more than that, but why people have inflated it to mean he may be playing the live action version in the future. We're going to break it all down. But first, if you could grab the subscribe button, we're still giving away this one fourth scale beta ray bill and our third and final infinity saga box set in just about a month all you have to do to be entered to win hit the subscribe button then leave a comment down below and if you want stick around at the end of the video we'll get into all the giveaway stuff again there so as i mentioned in the prologue and a lot of you who watch my channel will know that we cover everything including rumors but if i hear something and i think there's zero chance of it happening and there's also zero evidence then we don't cover it which was the case when the first rumor popped up that jaden smith could be tied to a live action version of miles morales and at the time when this popped up my reasoning for not covering it was twofold first of all they had just had the success of into the spider-verse the animated version and although we've confirmed that miles morales does exist in the mcu via that quick scene with donald glover in spider-man homecoming i just didn't think that they would run a live action version of that character out immediately we already knew that they were going to do and into the Spider-Verse 2, and we already had Tom Holland in the MCU. This was also long before all of these most recent Spider-Verse rumors popped up with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Then came the official report that something was happening between Jaden Smith and Sony regarding Miles Morales, but that was revealed to be the music video I'm Ready for the Miles Morales PlayStation 5 video game that he released just a week ago. And again, that wasn't enough to support the rumor. Honestly, I just couldn't see it. Jaden Smith as Miles Morales doesn't do it for me. I'd rather see a fresh face, much in the way that they used a relative unknown like Tom Holland. Either way, I think that official report from what we just saw released between Sony and Jaden Smith on top of the already existing rumors and well a couple of pieces of fan art all came together to sort of fuel this rumor but really there's actually nothing behind it and quite honestly if there's any chance of them bringing back Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield anytime soon they're not going to throw Miles Morales on top now listen guys this happens there has been so much Marvel Cinematic Universe news piled in since the release of Infinity War that it's almost begun to sort of pile up in a way some people can can't sort through and I'm not going to say any names but one of my favorite YouTubers and someone who's one of the biggest on the entire platform just made a report real recently of an upcoming Disney Plus series and was using reporting material from September of 2019. It's all good. This stuff happens. But this rumor in particular, even though it seems to keep popping up every six months, literally had nothing to it except for the fact that they were working together on that music video, which is a pretty far cry from them actually using him in a live action capacity. Eventually, we'll get Miles Morales in the MCU. 
but I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, and at least not until we figure out what's going on with Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, the return of Electro, and of course, perhaps Dr. Octopus in this upcoming Spider-Man 3. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. Are there any of you who actually could see Jaden Smith playing Miles Morales? I don't see it, but maybe you guys are fans and see something that I don't, and if not Jaden Smith, who are your ideas for a Miles Morales? Do you agree with me that maybe a fresh face or a relative unknown is a better option than an actor with all the connotation in the world, especially Will Smith's son? I'm all ears. Let me know your guys' thoughts. And quickly, let's get into the giveaway stuff before I let you go. We're still giving away our one-fourth scale Beta Ray Bill and our third and final Infinity Saga box set next month, regardless of the subscriber count. All you have to do to be entered to win, hit the subscribe button, then leave a comment down below. And because it's truly random, the more videos you comment on, the better chance you have of winning. All winners will be announced at the end of videos. If you've missed any of the previous winner announcements, no worries. Just scroll back through the channel, look for winner announcement and subcount in the title, click on that video and scroll to the end. One great way to keep up with the content is of course hitting the notification bell with notifications turned on and if you appreciated today's video or the content we do here at the channel, hitting the like button would be much appreciated. My name is Michael Roman. You can find me over on Instagram at IamFires or over on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Novellen, N-V-E-L-L-E-N. There's links down in the description to both. Thanks for checking out the channel, guys, and stick around. We'll be posting again real, real soon. What's going on guys? Welcome to Everything Always. My name's Michael Roman. Now it was just over a week ago here at the channel we reported on friend of the channel and industry insider Mikey Sutton's report that Marvel Studios intended on bringing in Charlie Cox next month after the rights had officially bounced back to Marvel Studios in the House of the Mouse to see if they couldn't get him to reprise his role as Daredevil and maybe no other franchise widely rumored to contain said debut if he were ever to return than of course Spider-Man. There were even initial rumors last year that Daredevil could show up in Spider-Man 3. Well, we easily put those to bed. This script has been done for a long time and the rights are just now bouncing back to Marvel Studios. But today we have a brand new report again from Mikey Sutton who will forever be tied to Spider-Man reports and we'll get to that explaining just where Daredevil could show up a Spider-Man franchise film indeed and the common adversary that would unite the two of them This sort of falls in line with other reports and rumors we've gotten over the last two years which we are definitely going to contextualize we're going to break this all down and where Daredevil's most likely place to first show up would be but first if you could grab the subscribe button we're still giving away this insane one-fourth scale beta ray build and our third and final Infinity Saga box set on New Year's Eve. All you have to do to be entered to win, hit the subscribe button, then leave a comment down below. And if you want, stick around at the end of the video. We'll get into all the giveaway stuff again there. Now for some quick context, and in case you're not familiar with Mikey Sutton's name, this is the guy who originally leaked that Spider-Man and Black Panther for that matter, we're going to be in Civil War, and because Spider-Man is the biggest and most profitable superhero, guys, that's factual. He's miles ahead. It's not even close. Yes, a little Spider-Man pun there for you. I'll stop now. Because of how big Spider-Man is, there's enough clout in that one leak alone to propel Mikey Sutton as a leakster, but since then, he has gotten a ton of stuff right, and even recently revered by CBR.com as a trusted industry insider. His track record is pretty public. You can check it for yourself over on Geekosity, but let it be known when it comes to industry insider reports like Mikey Sutton or Charles Murphy. These are the guys who are willing to put their names on things so they get a lot more reverence than say the anonymous or Reddit 4chan leak or 
or theory or even some of these lesser Hollywood trades that basically just piggyback on whatever the back of these industry insiders say. He ran a report late last night under the headline scoop, Spider-Man to team up with Daredevil in a future movie. He goes on to report, quote, Daredevil will most likely not appear in Spider-Man 3, but that doesn't mean that the man without fear won't meet the web slinger in the near future. According to inside sources, there have been discussions of Spider-Man teaming up with Daredevil on the big screen, and the reason for this collaboration is because Spider-Man has a problem. A big problem. As Peter Parker attends college, which will provide an idea of how long before this will transpire, his Spider-Man crime-fighting days are met with huge punches in the face from the Kingpin. Spider-Man and Daredevil then discover they have a mutual foe in Wilson Fisk, the ultimate crime lord. As reported by Mikey numerous times in the last year, including the most recent report we ran last week here at the channel, Marvel Studios wants Charlie Cox to reprise his Netflix role as Daredevil, but whether Vincent D'Onofrio would be included remains to be seen and no negotiations have started yet. D'Onofrio is on record as saying he'd love to return as Wilson Fisk, but they haven't quite ironed out what's going to happen with any of that backstory. And as I've made mention many times, having Luke Cage's Cottonmouth now set, Mahershala Ali now to be Blade, it seems as though they're not going to keep any of that backstory. They would just recast the same actor and the same role and press forward with new story much in the way they did when they finally got the rights back for Spider-Man. We didn't get the normal origin story, they just rebooted the whole thing and kept it moving. Now, there are a couple of things in here we need to add a little context to. That's the idea of Peter Parker going to college and continuing on to play Spider-Man for other trilogies and films past the conclusion of this Spider-Man 3. This has been reported by Mikey Sutton basically going all the way back to last September when the rights deal was finally done between Disney and Marvel Studios and Sony. His initial report was twofold. First of all, that Sony's ultimate goal was to get them to all cross over in a Spider-Verse event. And as crazy as that sounded at the time, guys, we're talking over a year ago, 14 months, it seems to have all come to fruition, and at least Sony's intentions of doing so, which he was making light of back then, saying, hey, they must have had a negotiation piece of some kind. This is what Sony wants to do, not just Venom, but get all the Spider-Mans together. We now know that their intentions are in that place. That may have been what led to Kevin Feige eventually being like, well, listen, if we're going to canonize those cinematic universes, we might as well reach out to the X-Men guys and try to canonize those as well, which we've reported at at length. The second part of that report was that Tom Holland's Peter Parker would not be leaving the MCU in a one-way ticket to Sony to start crossing over against Morbius and Venom, that instead, they all knew, and they all being Disney, Marvel Studios, and Sony, they all understood that Tom Holland's Peter Parker would make the most money and is best suited where his narrative started in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so that hopefully, past the conclusion of this initial trilogy, which we'll get next December, December 2021, there will be two additional trilogies for a total of nine solo Spider-Man Peter Parker played by Tom Holland films in the MCU, one trilogy while he was still in high school, one trilogy while he's in college, and another trilogy still while he's an adult. And obviously from this report, we would see Daredevil in what is Spider-Man 4 or Spider-Man 5. Now, that's not too far off. And let me explain, in case you haven't been keeping tabs and not using this year as a litmus test, all everything that's happened, they still may hit the mark there, considering it's coming out in December of next year. Sony pushes out a Spider-Man movie every other year year, which means if we're getting Spider-Man 3 in 2021, albeit the end, we most likely would get Spider-Man 4 if this is true and he continues in the MCU and they put out another film in the same co-distribution way that they're doing now, 
he would come out in Spider-Man 4 in 2023, which would be right around the time we would get another film that he's reported to cameo in, none other than the Fantastic Four. Oh, the timing. And to get Spider-Man 4 and Fantastic Four in the same year, it literally just made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. It would make up for everything that we didn't get this year. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. If you're going to see Daredevil enter the MCU, is Spider-Man the most likely place? And how awesome would it be to see them finally team up on the big screen, especially a more adult version of Peter Parker and the dour tone of Charlie Cox? I think that would be awesome. Tom Holland playing it a little more serious. I can't wait to see this on the big screen no matter what happens. Guys, let me know all your thoughts down below. And especially if they don't recast Charlie Cox, if they choose to go another way and do a full recasting, who is your best pick? for Daredevil in the MCU. I'm all ears and quickly let's get into the giveaway stuff before I let you go. We're still giving away this insane one-fourth scale Beta Ray Bill as well as our third and final Infinity Saga box set. We already gave away two this year. We'll give this third one away on New Year's Eve regardless of the subscriber count. We also have two brand new prizes coming on December 1st. I'm sure if you guys take a minute and think about what they could be, you're going to figure it out given all the giveaways here at the channel, Hint Hint, Playstations. All you have to do to be entered to win and all the same rules will always apply. Hit the subscribe button because you got to be a subscriber. Then leave a comment down below. I usually ask a ton of questions of you guys throughout the video. Pick one of those and drop a comment. And because it's truly random, the more videos you comment on, the better chance you have of winning. Now, the easy way to keep up with the videos, all you have to do, hit that notification bell, notifications turned on. That way you can make sure to drop comments. And of course, if you enjoyed today's video or the rest of the content here at the channel, I'd sincerely appreciate it if you'd hit the like button. My name is Michael Roman. You can find me over on Instagram at IamFires or over on Twitch twitch.tv forward slash novellen n-v-e-l-l-e-n there's links down in the description to both guys thanks for checking out the channel stick around we'll be posting again real real soon welcome back to new rock stars i'm eric voss this is fully wow <laughs> filet mignon welcome back to new rock stars i'm eric voss this is philip molina uh, guys there are some major bite-sized questions that I'm really excited uh, about getting the answer to that Eric is gonna tackle this uh -huh. week. This one's from at Yana Lama. Yana Lama. Yana Lama. What was Thanos cooking on the farm planet in Endgame? Oh, yeah, yeah. In Endgame, he's like, he's got uh, something on he's the He's got a full sequence where it's yeah. just like a cooking show. Well, we don't have an answer for this, but we can kind of look at some clues. It looks like some kind of stew. It's in a kettle over a fire. He picks these plants from his farm. They look like some kind of either a fruit or vegetable similar to a tomato or an ear of corn or a squash that you can just kind of like pick off. It's not a root vegetable like a potato. It probably wouldn't be a fruit unless it's like a tomato because fruits are usually sweet. You want something more savory if you're gonna make a stew. Squash sounds like a good option. My guess is he's making like a butternut squash style stew or a bisque. He does season it, which implies that he has taste buds. What's interesting is if you look at the comics, Thanos does not require food. That's comics Thanos. He uses the energy of like Infinity Stones to sustain himself, so. <laughs> but also remember the condition that he's in. He's basically got like the flu. Yeah, he's, he's weak. There. And so he's like, I'm gonna make my, you know, old chicken noodle. He's limping and he doesn't have the stones anymore. He reduced them to atoms. Also, like anybody who does fitness knows you can't get that jacked without having like a heavy calorie intake every day. Give me all 
the bacon and eggs you have. Every villain has just got a huge physique, but like he needs some kind of gravity to work against his muscles for them to grow that large. <laughs> but he does have taste buds if he seasons it. Like he wouldn't season food unless he cared about how it tasted. And that's the question we care about. Does yes. Thanos have taste buds? Yeah, I think it is something interesting that like <laughs> he seasons it and it reminds us it evokes when Vision spices a pepper cache. Like, is he trying to evoke what Vision did? Because Vision can't taste either. He doesn't understand the concept of taste. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's like a bit of a vision soul that's speaking through vision in that moment. Or do you guys do you guys want a breakdown of all the superhero tongues in the MCU? Yes, please. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, at Julia Wow Shower, how common is Arthur Flex pathological laughter disorder? Okay. If it's real, which it is real. Is it's based on a, a real condition. It's not named in the movie, but the closest analog we have in in our medical science is called pseudobulbar affect or PDA. And it's actually, it's something that's common among uh, stroke victims. So it's characterized by frequent involuntary bouts of crying, laughter, or other emotional displays, exaggerated or disconnected from the individual's actual emotional state. So this is something that is actually fairly common. It's caused by brain injuries, neurological disorders uh, that impact the part of the brain that uh, controls how we process emotion. Mm. And according to the Mayo Clinic, it affects one million people in the United States. A million, a million living people. right now? Up to a million, because a lot of people have suffered brain injuries. City. A lot of people get in car accidents or they're older and they have strokes. They, they don't process emotion the same mm -hmm. way. It's not like Arthur Fleck walking around. In some cases it is, but most of the time it's people who are suffering from a lot of other conditions as well. And that's kind of like the least of your worries. The fact that they're laughing when they shouldn't be laughing or mm -hmm. crying when they shouldn't be crying. Just to give you a sense of the scale, one million people is roughly the size of the population of a lot of cities, like San Jose, yeah, California exactly. has a million people. It's half of my me. Yeah, yep. uh, half of our subscribers have uh, inappropriate emotional responses to things. <laughs> I mean, that's all of them yes. probably do, yeah. uh, as do we. Uh, that's super interesting that it's that high a number. Uh -huh. Here's the real question then, what happened to the Joker's brain? He was tortured as a kid, right? He was abused by Penny Fleck's ex-boyfriend who tied him to a radiator and his brain was pressed against the heat of a radiator. Uh, I don't know if that would be enough to damage it. You'd think that'd be like a flesh wound as opposed to like brain damage. But like if he's doing that to him, he might also be like, you Speeding know, the crap out of him. Beating him up. Also, yeah. radiators radioactive probably, right? <laughs> that's how they work, right? <laughs> yeah, that's where you get the heat from. Depending, if you live in Canada, you might need a radioactive radiator. <laughs> What's this character? Because it's so cold up there. <laughs> this is, uh, oh, I'm a snowman. <laughs> but a Canadian one, right? <laughs> Not a Canadian. Uh, it's kind of Southern. Hello, present day Eric here. I just wanted to thank you guys for supporting us and we hope you are enjoying these classic bite-sized segments. They're classic. They're segments that we realize not all of you guys have had the time to watch because we know they're buried in other videos. Kind of hard to find. And uh, we know most of you have not seen them because we keep getting asked these questions from you over and over again, which is totally fine. They are very good questions. And we have made great answers that we are so happy to help get more eyeballs on. Pre-quarantine Eric is coming back to answer the next question for you. But real quick, before we move on, I want to thank The Ridge for sponsoring this video. They are the makers of the sleek front pocket wallets. The Ridge wallet is light and sleek and industrial. It is designed to fit in your front pocket, unlike those bulky 90s style back pocket wallets to give you an America's ass no one would want to salute. This one is their black titanium model. It's so slick you can do some sleight of hands with it. I don't know how to do magic. I just feel cool holding it. When you head out the door for like a quick errand to get whatever essential stuff that you need, you just take the minimal essentials with you to make for a quick hassle-free transaction. That's what these Ridge wallets are perfect for. The Ridge wallet comes in over 30 styles and colors including carbon fiber, burnt titanium. It holds up to 12 cards and still has room for cash. Every Ridge wallet comes with a 
lifetime guarantee and they will let you test drive it for 45 days and then send it back for a full refund if you don't love it. But it's got 30,000 five-star reviews, so you know they're doing something right. They also have great backpacks and travel bags with RFID blocking pockets, optional device charging batteries, and Ridge wallets are apparently chainsaw proof. So, you know, when Jason Voorhees kicks down your door, at least your credit cards will be okay. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping and returns by going to ridge.com slash newrockstars. That is ridge.com slash newrockstars. Use the code newrockstars. Find the link in the video's description. This one's from at Spilly Spitz. <laughs> Great name. Uh, in The Walking Dead, Jerry's axe cuts a dude in half, but then is also unable to <laughs> just cut a lock on a chain. Uh -huh. So the question is, is this a mistake? Should an axe that can cut a person clean in half be able to just cut through a lock? Great question. We're constantly wondering this when we're watching The Walking Dead. It's a- We uh, tried it. Yeah, we did. We demonstrated RIP, Gabe. The thing with The Walking Dead is it's all about like the whatever delivers the most gross-out gore because that's why we're watching the show at this point. Now the question's referring to in season eight, episode four, uh, the savior Gunther has kidnapped Ezekiel and Jerry, his henchman who has his big battle axe, saves Ezekiel right when he's about to die by cutting the dude in half vertically through like his collarbone, through his chest. Basically, we see a shot of his back and like flesh splits open and yeah. we just see Ezekiel be like, huh? And we don't know how clean, uh, like Jerry takes another whack at it. We don't really hear a clear sound to, to tell us, oh, what body part was slashed open there. Um, but it's implied that in one clean swipe, he's able to split this guy in half like a pumpkin. You're able to tell based on the sound what body part has been slashed open? Wait, you open? can't? <laughs> uh, not, not anymore. I bet like Foley artists, if you were to play like a specific yeah. sound effect, be like, ah, that's the next snap. Oh, uh, broke his foot. <laughs> yeah. um, but what's What's crazy about is this same axe, they're trying to get away from some walkers and he can't hack open a chain that's keeping the gate closed. Now the thing about this is, is uh, researching this, a, a metal steel chain is actually very, very hard to cut with an axe. Uh, there is a YouTuber, his name is Wrangler Star, and does this kind of stuff like in a, a metal shop all the time to see like, it's kind of like a will it blend type thing. Uh, or will it axe. Will it axe. Let's talk about that. He was trying to test to see if the scene in Cool Hand Luke, where a chain is cut, he tried to do it and was not able to do it because every time he tried to chop it, it was just the blunt force blow of the axe swing would just push that metal link into the wood of the surface that it was resting on. So it wouldn't mm. cut it. It requires a tremendous amount of strength on both sides, Newtonian third law there. So what he was able to do is get a, a steel surface. So he needed a strong steel surface pushing back against the axe blow to wedge all that force on the link itself. And only then he was able to cut it almost all the way through, but it was very hard and he had to get a full swing. So Jerry doesn't have any such force pushing back against that chain. So yeah, it would be really hard for him to split um, a steel link chain open, which has a much, much higher tensile strength than human flesh and bone. What is kind of crazy about this moment is the fact that Jerry could cut open a human with one blow of an axe. Yeah. It would it would wedge probably in Gunther's chest and then it would take him down. No, but where, it wouldn't the, split him open like Where's I, the entry point? Uh, the entry point, it's they don't show the entry point, but it, yeah, it's not like completely straight down the head because the skull is actually very hard. I think I saw a Mythbusters episode on that. The skull is not easy to break or to split open like that. You can fracture it for sure. And the femur are the are two of the strongest bones mm -hmm. of the body. But going through the collarbone, the collarbone's very easy to break. I broke so, it as so a So it's a yeah. diagonal. 
Yeah, it's kind of like a, a seatbelt cut, an eighty so. degree angle, I would say. Yeah, seatbelt cut is, is safe, and it kind of goes through. We don't know if it goes through like his crotch or his legs, but it's implied that it at least goes through his chest, and then it splits open like a pinata. Now we don't know how much calcium Gunther's getting, but it's safe to assume that that part was ridiculous. It was just done for shock value, but it is plausible that Jerry should not have been able to cut open that link. So that part of it is is safe. To, to say. Great. All right. Possible. Bite size question answered. Uh -huh. uh, bite size is gross when we're talking yeah. about this. Yeah. So that's been this week's episode of Big Question. A reminder to hit us up with uh, questions for next week using the hashtag Big Question. You can get featured on the show. One of these silly uh, uh, Twitter handles will be yours next week. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and let us know what you like about this show. If you want to see different kinds of questions answered, where we just love making this an interactive Q&A thing where we can finally uh, have an opportunity to answer the things you guys have always been asking us so we can't fit into other videos. I've been Eric Voss. I'm slightly drunk. <laughs> uh, make sure to follow us at EA Voss, at Philip Molina on, on everything, and uh, see you next week. Bye. The things that make the Punisher so unique and polarizing go beyond the way he deals with criminals. From the influences that led to his creation to the strange evolution on the page, here's the in-depth, untold truth behind the Punisher. There are very few comic book characters whose creation hasn't been influenced by something else. The Punisher was no exception. Before Frank Castle hit the comics page in 1974, there was Mac Bolan, the Executioner. Created by Don Pendleton in 1969, The Executioner was a series of pulpy adventure novels that were incredibly successful. As for what they were about, well, see if any of this sounds familiar. Mac Bolan was a highly decorated Green Beret whose service in the Vietnam War earned him an evocative nickname. Unfortunately, his action as a soldier couldn't keep him from experiencing tragedy on the home front. His family was killed in a gruesome crime that turned out to be tied to the Mafia prompting Bolin to go AWOL and launch a one-man war against organized crime. A few years after Pendleton created The Executioner, The Punisher appeared in 1974's Amazing Spider-Man number 129. The version who appears there is a bit different from how he'd evolve over the next decade, but you can see the groundwork in the original story. Despite being a hired assassin working for the supervillain The Jackal, he claimed to only kill those who deserved it and was only targeting Spider-Man because he'd been tricked into believing that Spidey was a killer. He also mentions that he's a former Marine, but now fights, quote, a lonely war. Originally, the Punisher was conceived as a straight-up villain. In the course of writing the issue, however, Conway realized that, quote, he had a moral code I could use to resolve story points. As a result, the Punisher simply walked away at the end of the story, with Spider-Man getting out of the whole attempted murder thing pretty quickly. While he wouldn't get his own comic for another 10 years after his initial appearance, it wasn't long before The Punisher started headlining stories of his own. Mostly, this happened in the pages of magazines like Marvel Preview, which were printed without the approval of the Comics Code Authority and lent themselves to more violent, adult-oriented tales. All of that changed in January of 1986 and the release of The Punisher No. 1. Titled Circle of Blood, it picked up with Frank being sent to prison at Rikers Island, which, as you may know, is a very large building containing nothing but people who hate the Punisher. 
It followed Frank as he was broken out by the Trust, a clandestine organization that wanted to fund him in his war against crime and spark a gang war that would take out most of Manhattan's criminals. The five-issue miniseries was a success, and 1987 saw the launch of a Punisher series that would run for over a hundred issues and cement Frank Castle as one of Marvel's top characters. The Punisher ongoing series was still definitely a Marvel title, but the focus was rarely on supervillains. Instead, much like it had in the beginning, the Punisher's solo adventures drew their influences from outside comics. That's a nice way of saying that writer Mike Barron spent a few years basically rewriting the action movie aisle of a blockbuster as 22-page comics. The most egregious example comes pretty early on. In Punisher No. 14, Frank goes undercover as a substitute teacher to root out a drug-dealing operation at a high school, an adventure that bears some striking similarities to Class of 1984, a film that's basically just, what if the guy from Death Wish was a high school teacher? To Barron's credit, though, the story where Frank goes undercover with a biker gang to topple their meth empire actually predates the release of Stone Cold, a cinematic flop starring ex-football player Brian Bosworth with the exact same plot by over a year. Frank Castle kills his enemies. It's the thing that sets him apart from the other characters in the Marvel Universe and, to a larger extent, superheroes as a whole. There is, however, a problem with that, at least from a storytelling standpoint. If you kill your enemies, they can never be developed into compelling nemeses. If you get right down to it, that's the real-world reason that Batman doesn't kill the Joker. He's just too popular to go away forever. I think you and I are destined to do this forever. That extends into another problem in that it limits the scope of Frank's enemies to characters he can actually kill. The Punisher's arch-enemy for the first year of his solo title was the Kingpin, and that story never resolves for the simple reason that it can't. The Kingpin is too big a character to be killed off by a guy who primarily fights regular human criminals. Put those traits together, and the end result is that the Punisher, by his very nature, doesn't have many villains who survive their first appearances. There are a few exceptions to the Punisher's tendency to kill off the bad guys, and the biggest is Jigsaw. After originally appearing in Amazing Spider-Man number 162 with a shadowy cameo in the previous issue, Jigsaw would return as a bullet in Frank's side for years. Jigsaw was built around a pretty simple concept. In his early days as a vigilante, Frank chucked a guy named Billy Russo headfirst through a plate glass window. Billy's formerly handsome face was shredded by the shards of glass, and after it was stitched up into a form that closely resembled a jigsaw puzzle, he was out for revenge. The thing is, none of that really happens in his first appearance, possibly because it was a little too violent for 1976. Instead, when Jigsaw first appears, all that stuff is backstory, with the understanding that Frank has been around for a while doing terrible things to criminals. As for Jigsaw, there's something of a recurring gag about how he'll get his face fixed, only to have it messed up again by the end of the story. The strangest example of this might be the time that his face was healed by a mystically powerful villain named Lucifer who claimed to be the actual devil himself. That lasted about 15 pages before Frank repeatedly rammed Jigsaw's face into a cactus. As the closest thing Frank has to a long-term arch-nemesis in the comics, it's not surprising that Jigsaw has made it into most adaptations of The Punisher, including the Netflix show. This version of the character had a very different origin. Rather than just being some two-bit mobster, Billy Russo was an old friend of Frank's that he'd served alongside in the Marines. 
which also made him one of the soldiers who'd killed an innocent man who was framed for being a terrorist. To keep a secret, Russo tried to kill Frank, but you already know how well that works out for the bad guys. At the end of season one, Frank repeatedly smashed Billy's face into a mirror. Considering how violent the Netflix shows can get, it's a bit surprising that Billy's scars aren't quite as grotesque as his comic book counterparts. Instead, Netflix's Jigsaw developed a fascination with the masks he wore while recovering from his injuries, decorating them to be creepy, disfigured skulls due to his nightmares about Frank. He did share the original's desire for revenge, though, and his success rate. By the end of the 80s, The Punisher was well on his way to becoming one of the most popular characters in Marvel's catalog of heroes. He also had one advantage that Spider-Man and the X-Men didn't. He didn't have the kind of superpowers that would require a massive special effects budget to bring to film. As a result, the 1989 Punisher movie, in which Dolph Lundgren starred as Frank Castle, probably seemed like a safe bet for low-budget success. It was not. The film was never theatrically released in America and wouldn't hit home video until 1991. Looking back from 30 years later, however, The Punisher 89 has its share of flaws, but it's also a pretty faithful adaptation. The plot is lifted from the first year of Punisher solo comics, where Frank's war against the mob has caused them to seek an uneasy alliance with the Yakuza. The origin was changed to make Frank a cop rather than a soldier, distancing him from Vietnam, but that's also a tactic that different comic book versions of the character have used. It's no exaggeration to say that by the early 90s, The Punisher was one of Marvel's most popular characters. If you need proof, look no further than the sheer amount of comics about the character that were being published. While The Punisher was starring in three titles every month, characters like Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor all had one apiece. The Avengers had their regular title and Avengers West Coast. The only other characters on or above Frank's level at the time were Spider-Man, with four, and the all-consuming, unstoppable steamroller that was the X-Men which topped out at somewhere around 9 or 10, if you count everything that had a reasonable chance of Wolverine showing up. On top of that, there were dozens of miniseries, one-shots, and specials. All told, there were around 26 different Punisher series or one-shots published between 1990 and 1995, clocking in with a total of 343 issues and three book-length original graphic novels. For comparison, that's how many issues of Amazing Spider-Man were published from 1963 to 1991. The strangest one by far, however, was Punisher Armory, a 10-issue series written and drawn by Elliot R. Brown in 1990. Punisher Armory's first issue promised to reveal his thoughts, his feelings, his weapons, and did exactly that. There was no plot, just full-page drawings of guns and other assorted weapons captioned with highly detailed reviews written from Frank Castle's point of view. Please note that almost all of these were real guns, and said reviews often contained Frank's endorsements for real-life gun manufacturers. The weirdest thing about Punisher Armory comes when you try to figure out why it exists in the world of the comics themselves. If these are Frank's thoughts about his weapons, then who is he writing them down for? Why would you do this? Only slightly less bizarre than Punisher Armory was the franchise's fourth ongoing series and the only one that didn't star Frank Castle, Punisher 2099. Launched in 1992, the first wave of 2099 books was focused on cyberpunk versions of Spider-Man, Doctor Doom, 
and The Punisher, along with a new book called Ravage 2099. While the rest of the line was of varying quality, Punisher 2099 is worth your time if you ever find it in a dollar bin somewhere. Jake Gallows essentially had the same origin as Frank. Family murdered by bad guys, big jacket with a skull on it, etc. But when he found the original Punisher's old war journal, he decided to take up his one-man war. If Frank was an anti-hero you could understand, Jake was a full-on fascist with a secret prison under his house where he kept bad guys until he executed them by disintegrating them one cell at a time. He would later become the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. after Doctor Doom took over the world. By 1995, the age of Frank holding down three monthly titles and flooding the market with spinoffs were over. But to be fair, it wasn't just him. After the massive, speculator-driven boom in the early 90s that had seen comics like X-Men No. 1 selling in the millions, the comics industry nearly collapsed, with a contraction that saw Marvel declaring bankruptcy in 1996. This led the company to sell off the movie rights to popular characters like Spider-Man and the X-Men, leaving them with the ones nobody was really interested in. You know, Iron Man, Thor, the Avengers. Who would want to see a movie with those B-listers? Anyway, after his titles got the axe, Frank was caught up in a crossover called Over the Edge, which, among other things, saw him having a mental breakdown and killing Nick Fury. Fury got better, but Frank also believed that he'd killed an innocent family in Central Park, much like his own family had been killed. That led him to finally plead guilty for what we can only assume were several thousand deaths. He was sentenced to die via electric chair, only finding out seconds before they threw the switch that the family had been killed by Bullseye, who framed Frank so convincingly that he bought it himself. It will not surprise you to find that Frank's execution was a hoax. Instead, he was broken out by a crime lord who wanted the Punisher to take over his empire. Punisher Joins the Mob was an intriguing hook, but the relaunched Punisher only lasted 10 issues. In the late 90s, Marvel was clawing its way back from bankruptcy with the time-honored strategy of throwing whatever they could against the wall and seeing what stuck. In 1998, however, the tide began to turn. That year saw the creation of the Marvel Knights imprint under artist and editor Joe Casada who handpicked creative teams with longtime collaborator Jimmy Pagliotti. The basic idea was to put the spotlight on street-level Marvel characters with a grittier direction that would hopefully propel them to stardom. And it worked. So well, in fact, that Casada wound up becoming Marvel's editor-in-chief two years later and chief creative officer in 2010. Looking at the four titles that launched the line, it's easy to see why. Christopher Priest's Black Panther redefined the character, introducing lasting concepts like the Dora Milaje, and blending the Panther's cooler-than-Bond world-traveling Royal Avenger status with street-level action. Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee's Inhumans was the most well-regarded run on those characters since their creation, and has kept that status in the decades since. The flagship book, Daredevil, paired Casada with writer and filmmaker Kevin Smith, sparking a trend of recruiting from Hollywood that continues. And then there was Punisher by Christopher Golden, Tom Shinoski, and the legendary Bernie Wrightson, which is commonly regarded as the low point in the character's long history. The concept they came up with was very strange, even by Punisher standards. After killing himself, Frank was resurrected as a ghost and recruited by angels to hunt down demons, using magic machine guns that he pulled out of his magic trench coat. The twist was that his celestial recruitment officer had actually been his family's guardian angel, who had been asleep on the job the day they were killed in Central Park. 
Unfortunately, the book was a flop, and a second attempt at Angel Punisher, the guest-starred Wolverine, didn't improve things. Two years after the failed experiment of Angel Punisher, the Marvel Knights line took another shot at Frank. And this time, it worked so well that it would become the definitive take on the character. Fresh from their massively successful Preacher at DC's Vertigo imprint, writer Garth Ennis and artist Steve Dillon took a back-to-basics approach of pitting Frank against an over-the-top caricature of the mob. Dylan and Ennis brought Punisher the same blend of ultra-violence, grim humor, and surprisingly deep character work that made Preacher a hit. It produced what was unquestionably the best Punisher run of all time up to that point, influencing virtually every interpretation of the character across all media for the next two decades. Ennis would wind up sticking around as the character's primary writer for the next eight years, with a few scattered stories since. In that time, he oversaw the Punisher's transition from the Marvel Knights line to the flagship of Marvel Max. While Marvel Knights had been more of a gray area, the Punisher of the Max years just did not coexist with characters like Spider-Man and Captain America. Propelled by his renewed success in the comics, the Punisher would hit the screen once again in 2004, starring Thomas Jane as Frank Castle and John Travolta as the villainous mob boss Howard Saint. This time, the film was influenced by the Ennis Dillon run, bringing in characters like The Russian, a nearly indestructible assassin played by wrestler Kevin Nash. Unfortunately, in terms of quality, Punisher 2004 is roughly equal to Punisher 89. While it had a little of the flavor of the comics, the movie gilded the lily with some weird choices that dragged it down. A lot of things that didn't need explaining were given detailed origins, like getting a skull logo from a t-shirt his son bought because it scared him. Frank was also an undercover FBI agent, making his family's death a revenge killing rather than the random violence of the original. Perhaps strangest, the setting was moved from New York to Tampa. Despite the movie's flaws, Jane is a solid choice and clearly developed a connection to the character. He voiced the Punisher in a video game and pulled out of a sequel because he didn't believe in the script. In 2012, he even made a well-received 10-minute fan film called Dirty Laundry where he reprised the role. Even John Bernthal, who would go on to play the Punisher on Netflix, was a big fan. A third Punisher film, Punisher Warzone, was released in 2008 from Academy Award-nominated director and former world karate champion Lexi Alexander, starring Ray Stevenson as Frank Castle. This time, the movie stuck a little more faithfully to the comics, pitting the Punisher against Jigsaw and bringing in Microchip as Frank's sidekick. Unfortunately, there were also some pretty weird choices notably in giving Jigsaw a brother, a cannibal named Looney Bin Jim, adding what was essentially just Jigsaw Plus to the movie instead of just focusing on Frank's most enduring enemy. The Punisher and Daredevil have been linked in comics for years. They're frequently depicted as ideological opposites, and one of Ennis and Dillon's most memorable issues involved Frank explaining his methods by chaining Daredevil up and forcing him to choose between shooting Frank or letting him kill a murderer. As a result, it wasn't surprising when Netflix's lineup of Marvel series expanded to include The Punisher, who first appeared in Daredevil's second season before being spun off into his own show. Despite a fairly positive reception, the show was cancelled, along with all the other Netflix Marvel shows, in 2019, in advance of the launch of Disney+. Check out one of our newest videos right here! Plus, even more Looper videos about your favorite comic characters are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one.